0: Welcome to Uncooked, a podcast serving up raw insights for marketers as we hear the unfiltered truth from industry experts, brands, and the target audiences we serve in their own words. I'm your host, Jacqueline Lieberman, and today on Uncooked, I've compiled a second wrap-up episode for you. It's meant to reflect on the last few episodes of the month, bubbling up some key findings for you all in one place. Basically, it's like the Cliff Notes version. However, the real meat is found within the episode. So I'm hoping to give you a flavor for what was covered so you could decide to go back and listen for the insights you might need for the work you do. So let's dig in. We started off by talking with Ben Zeidler from Nonfiction Research. Nonfiction, quote, gleefully violates the norms of traditional research. They've ventured unchaperoned into prisons, surveyed rap lyrics to chart personal finance trends, and they run quantitative studies on the secret sex lives of Americans. All right. I would love to understand what was kind of the white space that you guys were trying to fill that to your point that you were just making before is that there's other bends to research, but there's these little (laughs) nuances that I don't think a lot of people know about. So can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. The white space, that's a great question. The white space is really what you described, which is being handed reports that don't help you make decisions around your consumer, right? They don't really help you. They might help you understand the broader market or market size or whatever it is, but they don't help you understand like the lifeblood of the consumer and what's really going on inside their their minds.
0: Is part of that problem, and I'll call it a problem, but yeah. is, is part of that problem that the syndicated research you know, they're not sharing your hypothesis or your questions, right? So they had their own sense of what they wanted to go and find out. So you're trying to, but you have your own set of questions that you're trying to get answered. Is it that there's a, you know, kind of a disconnect there, or are you saying that they are using methods that are inferior to kind of uh, the methodologies that you're looking at?
1: Yeah, I guess I would say that they're kind of trying to boil the ocean and make sense of a big category all at once. And that's because they have, you know, what do they have a hundred people reading each piece? Like they have to serve all of those different audiences, right? And so when I look at a lot of syndicated research, it's almost like there is no hypothesis, right? There is none. It just, they're just trying to understand as many of these little components as they could. What's the market size? Who are the major brands? How much is each, uh, is each responsible for? Uh, what are the core reasons why people buy?
0: To Ben's point, nonfiction approaches research differently not only in the methods they use, but in the questions they ask. In their report, The Secret Financial Lives of Americans, which you can download for free on their site, nonfiction.co, Nonfiction uncovered that a staggering number of Americans are leading double lives when it comes to money. To their friends and neighbors, they look even normal, prosperous. But behind closed doors, Americans are badly in need of help with money and the big emotions money evokes for people, like shame and desperation. 41% of Americans earning over $200,000 have admitted to crying about not having enough money. That just doesn't make any sense. So why was everyone crying about money? To understand what banking can do better, of course, they interviewed consumers and they interviewed bank CEOs, because if you're going to do a secret financial lives report, you should start there. But nonfiction also calls upon what they consider, quote-unquote, adjacent experts as part of their process, they found and befriended and interviewed two convicted bank robbers to ask how the banking industry can be improved to help more people. Well, you'll have to listen to episode eight to find out how exactly they pulled that one off. Then in part two, with nonfiction, we explored a term called emotional realism. And this stemmed from research that they conducted around scraping the contents of America's Spotify playlists and they did that to offer clues into people's emotional lives, the lives which companies and advertising especially are deeply out of touch with.
1: I'll never forget. We had one playlist. The users are anonymized, but they have like user IDs. So you could take the user ID and track playlists over time. And there was one user who made a playlist about a miscarriage that she had had. Wow. And helping her get through the miscarriage. And then three years later she had another playlist for the birth of her child mm. um it's like oh shit <laughs> yeah
0: so, and you got like a little sneak peek into her life
1: yeah. yeah and she's using playlists to help her manage all the parts of life right the joys and the sadnesses and all those things so well, that's sort of like the aha moment right mm-hmm. I, I know it took me a while to get there but we were we were like whoa there's something major happening here
0: sometimes i don't
1: Our big hypothesis that when you look at most marketing and advertising, there's a certain amount of like happy washing that goes on. Like you look at most financial service or insurance company commercials, everybody's happy. The Thanksgiving dinner table is set. Everyone's come home, it's all good, and we're ready to rock. But I don't know, humans are more complex than that, right? And so I think our push in this report is, we talked about like emotional realism and it doesn't mean that it needs to be sad, but it does mean that there's probably a whole host of emotions that most brands don't touch for whatever reason. And maybe they should, because there's a whole legion of Americans out there writing playlist titles like, I'm crying on my porch and it's 3 a.m. and I'm in a dress.
0: 44% of Americans confess they have listened to music to purposely feel dark emotions. 31% confess that they have listened to music just to feel something, anything at all. Nonfiction goes on to probe even further to ask, If in private, Americans are craving deep, dark emotions, is it weird that in public life we mostly pretend that these emotions don't exist? Such a good question. Episode 9 has the answer to that little gem. Next, I moved on to my latest obsession, which is a desk accessories company. In episode 10, I spoke with Ken Tamita, the co-founder of Grovemade, which makes accessories to build your dream workspace so you can get your best work done. Calling them workspace accessories, though, doesn't accurately describe it. Their stuff is beautiful. But as I found out during this podcast journey, I thought we were going to talk about great products and branding, which we did. But it was really a story about resiliency, which anyone finding themselves at a professional crossroads right now would need to hear. Here's Ken talking about following one of his early mentors, Gerard Minikawa, to a Burning Man festival to learn how to build with bamboo.
2: And I saw this guy who like never clocked out late at night. He's like sketching or building models or he didn't really have a job. It was his lifestyle.
0: Right. And being around that was
2: hugely influential. Yeah. And he basically just became my mentor for skill, but also uh, life. So part of the deal or he convinced me to move out there was that i'd have to help him out with the burning man project for free oh volunteer
0: yeah and what I'd did that entail
2: burning man but
0: yeah
2: i just went anyways so year one he wanted to build this huge bamboo structure and it was unofficial it was just part of a camp so gerard was already working with bamboo he was mm-hmm. really interested in using the poles for to build fences architectural features and Burning Man was kind of a place where he could experiment, kind of push the limits of that. And then professionally, he was also doing furniture out of the bamboo ply.
0: Okay.
2: And that was kind of the primary side that I was supposed to learn about is the furniture. I still remember what a profound experience that was, which a lot of burners can understand, especially being out there early and building these structures while no one's out there.
0: After that and a few other major experiences, Ken stumbled upon starting GroveMade after he befriended his co-founder, who had the idea to make beautifully engraved wooden iPhone cases. After a major failure and a lucky break article in Gizmodo, GroveMade became an overnight success.
2: We were an overnight business. We had—I can't remember—five or six thousand orders in one day, and suddenly the problems shifted from not enough to too many, too many orders. So that, oh the gosh. next challenge was actually the most terrifying, the most stressful was taking all these people's money, and then not having a product that's scalable. So first we had to figure out make, how to make one, which took a while. And then we had to make thousands of them, no infrastructure, no management, no employees to do that. Oh my gosh! So that was probably the most stressful time in my life and my business career is feeling behind like that. So you can start to see how stressful this business model is because the 10,000 orders sounds great if it's dispersed over a year, but it's in like two days, right? And all those people want it immediately.
0: So what were some of the first products you started to develop that were not related to the iPhone or technology?
2: Our first stab at it was actually what we ended up with now, the desk collection. Kind of an f- interesting roundabout story of how we came out with that. But we, had a, we got an idea to make a monitor stand, a really nice looking monitor stand. Because when I was at RISD, uh, one of my friends, friends he actually started he's one of the three guys that started airbnb and around 2013 i visited him and he was showing me their like really fancy offices and they had hundreds of millions of dollars of venture capital at the time and everything you can imagine right nice just everything yeah but their monitors were propped up on books and boxes uh-huh and joe and i looked at each other and like simultaneously it was so obvious that the need and the idea that this design-centric company that had an infinite budget, couldn't find something. So we're like, we got to make something. right? And it percolated for like a year or so, but we finally designed something and it it looked pretty good. Uh, But suddenly when we were going to photograph it, the photograph didn't look good because all the other things in the photograph weren't ours. So we're like, hey, we got to design all this other stuff.
0: Ken's story about how he found his way and honed a skill is a great lesson in listening to your intuition about being truly open to where it can take you. He talks about taking risks and getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. He talks about creating space in our daily lives to explore creativity, no matter what kind of job we have. Grovemade had a meandering start, but their philosophy is really simple. The most direct path to doing really good work is creating a really good space for yourself. And as he states, there's a select chunk of society that is truly pushing to be exceptional. And for them, they need something better. And that's where Grovemade comes in. And finally, this wrap-up touches on my interview with Howard Paul, CEO of Benedetto Jazz Guitars. It's a story about carrying on the legacy of Bob Benedetto's fine craftsmanship and about music lovers passionate about keeping a whole genre of music alive and well in the age of YouTube pop stars. And... It's a marketing story about selling premium products for the super fans who matter versus the masses.
3: So when Bob Benedetto started building guitars in the late 60s, like everybody else, his aesthetic for jazz guitar came from all of these great instruments that had been built from the 20s until the 60s. But he felt, and professional jazz guitarists that he was willing to listen to, which was unique in the guitar industry, they didn't need all of those extra appointments that made them art deco-esque. They wanted guitars to be lighter and more resonant and louder and perform more evenly. And Bob found that the first thing you do to accomplish that is get rid of all the mass on these instruments that don't belong there. So everything on the guitar that had been chrome and plastic and tortoise shell all became wood as it is on a violin or a cello. Pick up a violin and there's almost no metal anywhere on that instrument. Right. Benedetto guitars started building violinistic jazz guitars. And what guitarists found was that while they didn't look as traditional, there was a sense of tradition hearkening back to the violin family of instruments. And in fact, they were lighter and more resonant and more evenly balanced than all the guitars that had been built up to that point.
0: Howard went on to say that Bob Benedetto was making 12 to 15 instruments a year back in the day, working a 15-hour day in a lead time that could have taken a few years. Today, there's about an eight-month lead time for a Benedetto, making about 120 to 150 guitars a year. That's the maximum amount of guitars that can be built without jeopardizing quality and doing harm to the brand. Howard admits this is not a scalable business, but you know what? He's okay with that. I would love to understand. So we talked a lot about Bob Benedetto. We Mm -hmm. talked a lot about the history and how you got here. I really want to know what is Howard's stamp going to be on the Benedetto legacy?
3: That's a great question. My, uh, it's not a vision, it's just an understanding I have that just like Gibson has been around since 1902 and Martin has been around since the late 1800s, Benedetto should be around 100 years from now. And it should have the same reputation that it has today it should have the same kind of focus and consistency of quality that it has today. And while there are probably ways to grow the company and do spin offs of the company, none of those things, in my opinion, will help maintain the integrity of the brand.
0: Benedetto was able to accomplish what very few brands have been able to do successfully. They've been able to carry on the founder's methods and vision while attracting new audiences. It's such a delicate balance, but it can be done and it can be done well. I hope this Cliff Notes version gave you a flavor of what you may have missed in the past few weeks. I want to thank the amazing guests and brands featured on Uncooked so far. Your stories and perspectives have been profoundly enriching to me and I'm sure to everyone listening as well. In the meantime, listeners, have a happy and especially very healthy holiday season. I cannot wait to bring you more starting back up in January. Thanks again for listening.